You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Good morning. I'm excited to be back with you today. Um, I want to start by just asking a quick question. Um, Have you ever found yourself thinking to yourself, that seems too good to be true? Like maybe you've got a coworker who has a habit of telling stories and you begin to try to add up all the details and something's just not quite adding up because you just can't quite seem to believe it. Maybe it's a, a buddy that's telling you about a fish that they caught and they swear that it was this big, but you would know, you know the truth and he knows the truth, right? Or maybe, maybe you're one of the people, when you watch a movie that's based on a true story, you have to go look it up online right afterwards to make sure that that's actually how it went down. I'll raise my hand because that is absolutely me. You see, we've all got this, I think, natural cynicism and skepticism when it comes to the things that we see and hear. It's like we're constantly putting what we see and what we hear from other people to the test to see, okay, can I believe this, or is this too good to be true? And as we dive back into our series, Letters to Live By, the book of Philippians, probably more than any other book that Paul wrote, is going to elicit this same reaction. It's a short book. It's only four chapters, 104 verses from start to finish. And yet, these few verses contain some of the most incredible and powerful and, quite frankly, hard-to-believe statements that Paul is ever going to make. He's going to say some bold things in this letter. Things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's going to say that he's thankful that he got thrown in prison. He's going to claim that he's cracked the secret to having contentment in any and every situation. And at a glance, you and I might be tempted to say, the things he's saying just seem a little too good to be true. And yet, I think there is something uniquely powerful that as you read what Paul has to say in this letter, the more you read, the more you believe that he might just be onto something. And so as we dive into this letter today, remember, we've got four questions that we've got to ask ourselves to make sure that we're reading these letters properly. And those questions are this, who, why, what, and how? So when it comes to the who, we're again talking about Paul, and this time it's the Philippians, and it's another special relationship. This church had an interesting start, to say the least. As Paul was starting the church, the first three members that God sent his way were a wealthy woman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Philippian jailer. And yet, God would take this unlikely combination of people, and he would build a church that was unified and generous and kind. And this church, more than any other churches, supported and cared for Paul on his journey. They sent money and resources and people, and as a result, there was a special place in Paul's heart for the Philippians. And so that brings us to the question of why. Why does he write this letter? And I believe that Philippians at its core really is a love letter. With the exception of a a small dispute that's happening between two ladies in the church, there isn't really anything that Paul's going to spend time correcting in this letter. But unlike Ephesians last week, this letter is deeply personal to Paul. If if Ephesians is just theology, then Philippians is theology that's grounded with a personal touch. He loves these people dearly, and he wants to express it to them. And so it brings us to the what. What is the one big idea of Philippians? Better yet, what's that one picture that's going to help us understand this book more than anything else? And you know, in the background, something that Doug and I have been joking about in this series 
is that the more we read these letters and the more we try to condense them down into a single, succinct sermon, the more we keep coming up to each other and saying, what in the world were we thinking? I mean, any of these letters you could spend weeks on and barely scratch the surface, so it just doesn't seem like a one sermon is going to do any of these letters justice. And so let me just say for the record right now, this was all Doug Adams' idea, but... As I've been reading Philippians, I've really been trying and struggling to find a picture that captures this book. And just when I think that I'm understanding the flow and the direction that Paul is taking, it's like he leads me into a new direction that's new and unexpected. And so for most of this week, if you were to ask me, hey, Tyler, what's the best picture to describe Philippians? I'd probably show you something like this. I don't know. I mean, a big ball of yarn. There's a million different threads. You can chase any of them. It just doesn't make sense. It's just like he's spewing things everywhere. But as I've gotten closer to today, I think there really is a better picture for you and I that we can focus on, and it's this right here. This is a picture of a live oak tree. I lived in Georgia for several years, and we have these trees everywhere. And if you've seen a tree like this in person, you know how impressive these trees can be. I mean, they are massive. They can grow 100 feet tall, and many of them are going to grow wider than they are tall. And you see that it has all these big, huge branches that sprawl off in every direction. And these branches are so big that any of them could be a full-fledged tree themselves. And these branches are just sprawling in every direction, but they all have one common trunk at the center. And that's really what I think the book of Philippians is. Paul has so much to say in this book. And he's going to branch off in a lot of different directions. And every single one of those directions is going to feel big, and it's going to feel weighty, and it's going to feel important. And it's going to feel like, man, we should devote an entire sermon, an entire letter, an entire book just to this idea. But every single one of those branches flowed from a single source. They flowed from the heart of a man who was inspired by God, and he was absolutely overflowing in joy. And that more than anything else, is what stands out in this book. Joy is what is at the center of everything Paul writes to the Philippians. It is the trunk that connects every single one of the branches that Paul is going to explore. And like we said at the beginning, it can seem at times like his joy is just too good to be true. Especially if you read what he has to say and you've experienced hardship or loss or grief or suffering or worry, or anxiety, it can seem when you read it like Paul is a little out of touch with reality. But unlike that fish that our buddy caught, or the based on a true story movie, what Paul has joy in isn't too good to be true. See, I believe that Paul's joy is the response to something that seems too good to be true, but turns out to actually be true. What Paul had joy in is real, it's authentic, it's genuine, and it's readily available for you and I every moment of every day. And so as we spend the next few minutes looking at this letter, there's really three layers of joy that are on display throughout the book that I think we need to take note of because each one of these layers of joy builds on one another. And so as you read through the book of Philippians, here's the three layers of joy you're going to see. You're going to see joy experienced. You're going to see joy expressed. And then finally, you're going to see joy extended. And you can think of these kind of like concentric circles that build out from one another. All of them are evident in this book. And so starting with the first layer, joy experienced, 
As we, as we talk about the theme of joy in Philippians, we ought to define what we're talking about. And, and there's a lot of definitions out there about what joy is. Everybody's tried to take a stab at what they think joy is. Some people say joy is a state of being. Some people say it's a choice. Some people say it's an emotion. Some people say it's a feeling. But you have to understand that this book, when it was written to the audience it was written to, it was meant to stand on its own. It was meant to be read out loud to people who most of them could not read or write, but it was meant to be understood by the audience who was hearing it just by virtue of the words that were contained within it. And so as we seek to define what are we talking about when Paul talks about joy, I think the most helpful place to look would be to see what Paul actually says joy is. And the word he uses in this book is a Greek word that's used prevalently in the Bible to describe joy, and it literally translates to grace recognized. And I love that because it does not get more simple or pure than that. Joy happens when grace is rightly recognized. And as Paul writes this letter, he's going to use some variation of this word a lot. On average, he's going to use it about once every seven sentences. Paul wants the listener to know that they can have joy by rightly recognizing grace. And so if joy is grace recognized, where do we go to find grace? And Paul's going to tell us clearly throughout the whole book, but nowhere more clearly than in Philippians chapter 3. Just look at verse 1. Here's what it says. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice, take joy in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. And so right there at the beginning, he says it. It's not a, it's not a hidden secret. It's not a complicated formula. He's going to say, if you're looking for grace and thereby looking for joy, you should look to Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. He says immediately after, I don't get tired of writing about this. I'm going to keep writing it over and over and over. And if you read Philippians, you will see it over and over and over. He says, I won't get tired of it. And you need it because it's a safeguard for you and it's a safeguard for me. It's something we need to be reminded of over and over and over. And so as the chapter continues, he'll talk about how there's going to be some that try to divert your attention off of Jesus and the grace that he freely offers. He's going to say, they're going to try to make faith in Jesus about some other things. And he tells them, if there was a path to grace and joy that way, I would have already found it. And, and so he proceeds throughout Philippians chapter 3 to just list off all the things he has to hang his hat on says, this is my family. This is my heritage. These are my accomplishments. This is my resume. These are my accolades. And after all of it, here's what he has to say in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me then, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I might have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ says, all that stuff, there's not grace there. It's garbage. It's not where it's at. Grace cannot be found in those things. It's all rubbish compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth of simply knowing Jesus. If joy is what happens when grace is rightly recognized, nowhere is grace more on display than in the person of Jesus Christ. Not any blessings in this life, no earthly relationship, no created thing. Grace is ultimately displayed in Jesus Christ. And so Paul recognizes the grace. 
And, and this is what he has to say about that grace in the very next verse. He says, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and have participation in the sufferings, becoming like him in death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This is a picture of grace for Paul. For Paul, grace means, hey, I don't have to do this all on my own. For Paul, grace means, hey, I can be seen as right in the eyes of God. For, for Paul, grace means I've got resurrection power working inside of me and through me. For Paul, grace means I can have eternity with God. And all of that grace is found in Jesus. And so here's Paul's logic. Jesus is the fullest expression of grace. And so he's got to be the greatest source of joy. If he's the fullest expression of grace, then it stands to reason he's got to be the greatest source of joy. And it's why Paul is going to say it so many times in this book. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And he wants us to know it's not a one-time deal. We don't just find joy in Jesus by recognizing his grace one time and then expect that we're just going to have joy for the rest of our lives. No, here's what he says. He says, you keep returning to him. Not that I've already obtained all this or already arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but here's one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prize that Paul is talking about is not heaven itself. The prize is eternity with Jesus in heaven. And he says, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to strive every day of my life to know Jesus more and see his worth and see his grace and see his value more until I reach eternity with him. This was not a one-time thing for Paul. This is an everyday thing for Paul. And so I think that begs the question for all of us in here, what about when I don't feel joy in my life? I mean, we've all felt that, right? Even David, a man after God's own heart, he writes in the Psalms, God, just give me back my joy. Restore the joy of my salvation. And so if knowing Jesus is the fullest expression of grace and thus the source of joy, why in the world do we experience periods of joylessness in our lives? It's a hard question. And I think if you think about it, if there's two sides to the equation, us and Jesus, understand that one of those sides to the equation is prone to change, and the other side of that equation is unchanging. And while scripture will tell you that there's nothing that can externally come and take your joy and rob your joy from you, no circumstance, no person, no scheme, nothing externally can come and rob your joy from you, it is entirely possible to cut yourself off from the source of your joy. And it's why scripture will tell us over and over and over the importance of rejoicing in Jesus and abiding in Jesus and walking with Jesus and keeping our eyes on Jesus because our faith, and in this case, our joy depends on it. You know, you can think of it like a, like a lamp. You know, occasionally I'll walk into my house and I'll go into a room and flip on a lamp only to discover that the lamp's not turning on. And I look around and I see that the power's on and so there's probably any number of things that could be going wrong, Right? 
Maybe somebody unplugged it. Maybe a light bulb's burned out. Maybe there's a breaker in my garage that's flipped. I could check any of those things. But I'll tell you what I don't do is immediately call the electric company and say, hey, why isn't my lamp working? Because the problem's not on their end. The problem's on my end. The electric company provides me with a constant, almost constant source of electricity to my house. But it's my job to actually tap into that power. And that might be a silly example for you, but, but think about it. Jesus is a constant source of grace and joy. And so we need to realize that when we go through joyless periods of our life, it's entirely possible to go through short periods or even long periods where we're failing to rightly recognize the grace of Jesus in our life and we're failing to go to him and tap into him as the source of our joy. And so as we head into those inevitable moments where it feels like, man, joy is nowhere to be found. Remember, Paul says it right here, rejoice in the Lord. And I'll keep saying it over and over and over again because it's a safeguard for us and you need to hear it. It's not just a one-time thing. This is an everyday thing. As long as there's breath in our lungs, rejoice in the Lord. And so this first layer of joy we see on display in Philippians is joy experienced, but it goes beyond that to another layer of joy that we're going to see, joy expressed. It's, it's like a cup that's being filled with water that just eventually spills out and overflows. As Paul experiences joy in Christ, he can't help but just let it overflow out of him. And so as he's writing this letter, he writes to tell them how their joy in Christ ought to overflow out of them and be expressed. And in this book, Paul is going to spend time on lots of different topics. And thinking back to our picture of the live oak, those are the big branches. Those are all the branches that any one of them could be standing alone on themselves. But every single one of them connect back to a common trunk. They are all overflowing out of his joy in Jesus. And out of all the branches that Paul's going to explore in this book, there's really three that we should look at that relate directly back to the joy that Paul experienced. And those three are humility, gratitude, and contentment. And like I said, every single one of those deserves a message and a series of their own. But here's a few thoughts on each of them. On the topic of humility, Paul's going to write this in Philippians 2. Therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. In other words, since you have such a joy that's rooted in Christ, here's how you ought to express it. Here's what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather... In humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And every time I read that, I, I can't help but think of a quote by the famous author C.S. Lewis. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. 
And so what Paul is advocating here is not that you and I think less of ourselves, but that we think way less about ourselves and we think way more about Jesus. And so he lays it right here for him. He's like, I want you to think about Jesus and to think about Jesus, think about what he's done. Here's what he's done. He made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. He became a man. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross for your sins and for my sins. He's trying to get them to take their eyes off of themselves and put them on to Christ because he knows that Jesus is the source of joy. For Paul, it's pretty simple. He knows it's hard to have joy in Jesus and be consumed with yourself. And so as a result, he says, be humble like Christ was humble because humility flows from a joyful heart. Another expression of joy he talks about in this book is gratitude. You'll see it all throughout the book. He's expressing gratitude, but just focus in on Philippians 4 for a second. Here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with gratitude, present your request to God. And what happens? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is one of these powerful expressions of joy that, that even the world has figured out how to kind of stumble them way, their way into. If you just do a quick Google search right now, you will find thousands and thousands of articles about the power of a daily practice of gratitude in your life and what it can do for you. The problem is that a lot of people have settled for an incomplete version of gratitude. I, I, they've got gratitude for their circumstances, and they've got gratitude... For the creative things. They've got gratitude for the gift, but they don't have gratitude that extends beyond the gift all the way up to the giver. And so Paul is going to say, one of the ways we express joy in our lives is through gratitude. Not just gratitude for the gift, but gratitude that extends beyond the gift to the giver. The third expression of joy Paul talks about is contentment. And on the topic of contentment, Paul says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well-fed, whether I'm hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, how do I do it? What's the secret? I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I, I've cracked the secret at the being content in any and every situation. The secret is knowing that you ultimately have everything you need in Jesus. It's an eternal perspective. It's not an earthly perspective. And this is hard because it does not necessarily mean that anything about our present reality will change. Paul still has needs. He's still hungry. He's still lonely. At the time of writing this, he still finds himself sitting in a prison. He's still being mistreated. But he could do all of that. And he could do it with joy because he had Jesus. He had the hope of his eternity secure in Jesus. And so that's the secret for him to be content. It's an expression of the joy he has in Jesus. And all three of these expressions of joy, we see a common theme. We see that the right circumstance is not a prerequisite for expressing joy. 
The right circumstance is not a prerequisite for you or I to be able to express joy. In fact, the three passages we just looked at paint a picture of some kind of poor circumstances. The right circumstance is not a prerequisite for expressing joy. The only prerequisite for expressing joy is experiencing grace. If you have experienced the grace of God through Jesus, you have everything you need, not just to experience joy, but also to be able to express joy. I just want you to know, expressing joy doesn't mean you're naive about your circumstances. It it, it does not mean that you just put on a fake smile and pretend like everything's fine. In fact, all throughout this letter and in others, Paul's going to comment on his hardship. He's going to comment on his pain. He's going to comment on his circumstances. He's going to feel it. But he's going to acknowledge that his circumstances, they don't have the power to dictate whether or not he's going to have joy. He doesn't allow his circumstances to have that power. Only Jesus has that power for him. And so in this book, we see joy experienced. And then building on that, we see it expressed. And then finally, we're going to see joy extended. And as you read through Philippians, you'll see Paul is going to kind of blur the lines between writing about theology and then writing about what he's personally experiencing. And he just kind of blurs the lines all throughout the book. And I'll be honest, as I was studying this, I was finding this to be really, really distracting. Like, like I'd be having this genuine moment with God where, where I'd be learning something about the humility of Christ on display. And then just a few sentences later, Paul just goes off onto this thing where he's like, hey, Epaphroditus, I'm going to send them back to you. If you could just send Timothy back to me, I'd love to just lock in those travel arrangements right now. If we could just go ahead and do that. And I'm like, Paul, what are you doing? Please just get back to what you were talking about. And he just blurs the lines between personal and theology, but... But the more I read it, the more I come to appreciate the blurring of these lines. Because more than any other book that Paul is going to write, you get to see a glimpse into his personal life. And you get to see that this is not just a man who is talking the talk. He is a man who is walking the walk. And I don't know, maybe that's why he did it. Maybe he did it so that the Philippians, and by extension us, could see that Paul is going to say, Hey, I'm not just writing these things. I'm actually living these things out myself. And it's a pretty well-known fact that I haven't really brought up or made much of until this point, that Paul is writing all of this from a prison floor in Rome. It's the same city he'd be executed in. And yet, in the midst of that situation, he writes what is considered the most joyful book in the Bible, this beautiful letter about his joy, And here's one of the personal details that Paul slips in that I've just come to love. Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, because Paul was experiencing joy, and because he was not shy about expressing his joy, all of a sudden you see that his joy is now extending to those around him. He tells us right there that the whole palace guard is getting to see and hear who Jesus is, and they're getting to experience the joy that Paul was experiencing. And keep in mind, these are not just any old guards. 
These are the palace guards. They are the elite guards. They would be the guards that would have services all the way up through the highest ranks of government, including the house of the emperor himself. More on that in just a second. But beyond even the palace guard that he's talking about, Paul says his joy in Christ in the midst of his present circumstances is helping all the Christians in Rome be confident in their faith and confident to express the joy they have in Jesus It is this beautiful picture of what a joy-filled life can do. And you might say, okay, what do do these personal details have to do with me? And I would say that they have everything to do with you and I. Because joy in Christ is contagious, and we would be wise to remember to never underestimate the power of a joy-filled life. It was not Paul's circumstances that gave his life power. Those circumstances were pretty crummy. And it was not his position, his resume, his accolades, none of that that gave him power. He called all those things garbage. What gave his life meaning and power in this moment was the joy he experienced in Christ and that he was expressing loudly to the world around him. And as a result of that, that joy was extending beyond just him. It was extending to the believers in Rome. It was extending to the whole palace guard, and also it was extending here. This is the last thing that Paul writes in the entire book. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All of God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And we will never know for sure how that happened. But the emperor of Rome, Nero, was one of the most violent and brutal opponents of Christians who has ever lived. He killed Christians without hesitation, often in public and humiliating ways. And yet, somehow, members of his household and his palace are putting their trust and their faith in Jesus. And it just so happens that there's a man locked away by the palace guard who's going on and on and on and on and on and on about the joy that he has in Jesus. Never underestimate the power of a joy-filled life. And I can understand that can be a hard thing to hear, especially when you're in the muck and the mire and you're in the thick of it, and you think, you know, that's, that's great for other people, but what about my life? And here's what I would say. I would say that Jesus is with you. He is with you in the muck and the mire. He promises that he will be there with you through all of it. And as unbearable and dark and hard as it can feel sometimes, if you can recognize the tiny sliver of grace there, that Jesus is there with you, I promise there is joy to be had even there. There's a reason why we read this book and we say, man, that seems too good to be true. Because it's, it's powerful. It has the power to change lives, but it's not just powerful. It's also available. It's available to you and to me right now, every day. And it's available to anybody who will ever rightly recognize the grace of God through Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you for today, and God, I thank you first and foremost that we have a reason to have joy, 
not in our circumstances, not in the created things, but God, we have a reason to have joy in you through Christ Jesus. And God, as I read Philippians, Paul was just overflowing with the joy that he felt and experienced in you. And so God, I pray for every believer in this room that you would help us experience and express our joy and that our joy, God, the power of a joy-filled life might extend our joy from us to other people in ways that we could only hope or imagine would happen, but God, you know how it can happen. And God, right now, I just pray that as we worship, we would worship together as one with joy-filled hearts of who you are and what you've done for us. God, thank you again for this moment. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.